Hello, and welcome back to Catalyzing Coherence. Today, I am here with Dr. Ben Hunt. Thank you for joining the show. Great to be here, Matthew. Appreciate it. Awesome. Ben is a, a brilliant man. I truly have, have so much respect for you, Dr. Hunt. Um, just to give people a little bit of an idea of, of where you're coming from and your history, I wanted to go through um, just a little bit of you know, a sampling of the things that you've done across the years to give people an idea of the breadth. I, I can't keep a job. That's my problem. <laughs> It's, it's That's quite what the, my wife says, anyway. Quite so, the polymathic background. Yeah, thank, thanks. <laughs> so you are currently the chief investment strategist at Salient, a hedge fund. Actually, that is as of two months ago. So I've oh. left Salient to start okay. my own firm. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I'm not, thank I'm not you. entirely thanks. up to date then. No, no, no. It's, a, it's, a, it's all good. Yeah, Salient's been my home for the last five years. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're an, an asset manager, mostly mutual funds, about about $13 billion. Uh, down in Houston and also here in San Francisco, mm -hmm. where we're where we're recording this, but uh, really, it's given me this this great opportunity to build the publishing and research uh, assets. Mm -hmm. And two months ago, we spun that out into a new firm that allowed me just just to focus on the publishing and the research. So, uh, yeah. so that's well, congratulations. That's no, thanks. So the that's wonderful. The new firm is called uh, Second Foundation Partners. Mm -hmm. It's my nod to, to Isaac Asimov. And, uh, <laughs> I love the, it. The Foundation Trilogy. Yeah, I'm sure the audience will definitely be. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, That yeah, will yeah, resonate yeah, with yeah. everybody in the audience as well. Uh, a lot of Asimov fans out there. Uh, so so that's your, your kind of day job in the financial world. That's right. You have a deep history. You had a you got a PhD at Harvard, I guess, the Kennedy School, probably? Was no, I mean, the Kennedy School is more of a, a mid-career uh, program. Okay. So this was in the... The, the arts and science department, mm -hmm. uh, the in department politics, of government. Though. Yeah. Well, it, they call it political science everywhere else. But yeah. At Harvard, they still call it government <laughs> for some weird, weird, weird Harvard reason. Harvard has to be special. I, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's right. So I, I was uh, I was a professor for ten years. Mm -hmm. First at NYU, and then uh, got a tenured spot down in uh, in Dallas at yeah. SMU. But to to your point, I've always had the entrepreneurial bug. And I'm sure as many of your listeners and viewers know, it is a bug. It's not a feature. Definitely. Right? And so we just, we just can't help ourselves, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I'd started a little company in, in, in grad school. Uh, I was a, a, a programmer, just self-taught programmer, and uh, left academia, left the tenured spot to, mm -hmm. to go start up or co-found a software company. Uh, very boring software company, <laughs> but interesting. Uh, back up in uh, back up in the Northeast, so okay. I've been up there since. So where you're in the Northeast right now? Where in the Northeast? Are you? Yeah, I, I live in I live in the like I said, like to call it the wilds of, of Fairfield County, Connecticut. Yeah. Which if you've ever been to Fairfield County, Connecticut, in fact, you went to to, to, to Yale, right? Yeah, that's correct. So so you're familiar with uh, yeah the the foibles, let's call it, <laughs> of, of of Fairfield County. So I, I I grew up in Alabama, which is about as far away. You know, in in every respect, yeah. from, different than from, from from Fairfield, Connecticut, than 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 you can imagine. Yeah, I actually um, went up to Connecticut to college from Florida. So fantastic, had a similar so, so, so similar you know culture well. shock. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. So I've always been a kind of a you know a fish out of water in a lot of respects, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's what a lot of people um, over these the last few decades is probably forever have felt that way, and and it's always in. I'll say technology writ large that I've found a way to, to, to reinvent myself and find a path to uh, both 
satisfy my own intellectual interests and also provide for a family. So that's that's the plan. And that's so so you moved up to Fairfield and that's where that's another phase of, of life that is the, the I guess the farm phase for right, lack of right. a better term. Well look which I, has been a source of, of, of many of your metaphors, which kind of brings us to the the more recent installment you've created Epsilon Theory, which is how right. I came across you. And in in this blog that's based on you know kind of a game theoretic um, and, and historical interpretation of market behavior and human behavior, you use many of your personal experiences from the farm, which I find absolutely fascinating and, and quite insightful. Well, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, um, I started writing, like I say, just a, a blog mm -hmm. a little over five years ago, and, and really I was just writing to myself. I, I was kind of in a, I, you know, wound down the, 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 the hedge fund uh, that I'd been working with and was trying to figure out what had happened in markets because we've had a real uh, sea change in, in, in market behavior really since the great financial crisis mm -hmm. and, uh, and the, really the, the Federal Reserve and other central banks taking on a, a whole new set of policies and powers really starting in, in March of 2009. And so I was trying to figure this out and I was kind of in, like, say in a dark place trying to, to, to figure this out and I was just writing a note to myself really and uh, I sent it out to about 100 uh, clients, friends. And for whatever reason or combination of reasons, it really struck a chord. And so, I, and, and I know these numbers aren't meaningful in kind of the larger you know, mass media uh, area, but in, in our little pond of financial services, it's, it's, it's grown to be a pretty big thing. About, about 100,000 people on the, the email distribution. Yeah. And that's no small mailing list. Well, you know, and, and, but the great thing is it's all been through word of mouth. It's yeah. all been through people finding yeah. it, discovering it. It's organic and people, it, it's comprised of people who care. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's, it's people, as I like to call it, uh, who are um, in the world. You know, they, these are successful. They tend to be successful uh, technologists or investors or financial advisors. But they're not necessarily of the world. Right, you know, really trying to 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 find to find their place, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as I've been trying to find my place, and and I do find it so useful to write about nature, to write about life on a it's a dilettante farm. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm like I'm like Eddie Albert on Green Acres, which is <laughs> which which way predates I think most of the people uh, you know in, in in your audience, but. Uh, I'm a complete poser when it comes to you know taking care of animals and driving the tractor. But the wonderful thing is that the land and I'll call it farming, you know, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes around it mm -hmm. as, as we're talking. It's very forgiving, and it, it in particularly in a in a place like Fairfield, Connecticut, right, where if I have a bad day, you know, I can go. To the local, you know, trattoria and get their amuse bouche <laughs> and some artisanal yeah, yeah. mezcal. It's not, it's not actually life and death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah. The, this is not the. Grain stores go right? bad. This, the village this, is not. This, you know, that's right. attacking itself. That's right. This ain't yeah. grapes of wrath <laughs> material, right? Yeah. But but at the same time, there is something both evocative, but also uh, you know, intensely satisfying. 
yeah. about working in nature and seeing the patterns of nature. I was just going to say, you don't necessarily have to be dependent on the patterns to observe them. That's exactly yeah. right. And in fact, it's a wonderful luxury not to be dependent on, mm-hmm. upon them. It, it allows you to step back a bit more and, you know, watch the bees, mm-hmm. right? Not and, and not to try to... Quite literally, quite quite literally, literally in your right. case. I, I saw the, case, the right. beehive in and, a recent and, video. And, and it's wonderful because I, I, I... And this maybe isn't interesting, maybe not, but the the, the history of beekeeping is, yeah. is, is fascinating, yeah. really. And we're most familiar with these boxes mm-hmm. where you see beehives, right? Or call it bee colonies. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting to me is that that the, that box that we that we're, we're most familiar with for anyone who's who's seen a yeah. the white boxes that are stacked with the white the drawers boxes in them. Stacked, exactly right those were invented by a uh, a German um, you know uh, preacher right uh, by the name of Langstroth and 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 of course it was a German he was an engineer at first and they became you know religious mm-hmm. and, but of course it is right because yeah. those those boxes are designed to maximize honey production. Yeah. Right. An efficient linear process. That's exactly right. They're, they're, they're pre-done to really, not exactly force, but certainly almost force, encourage yeah. the yeah. bees to create their yeah. brood and their comb in yeah. a very prescribed yeah. way. Like extremely unnatural constraints imposed exactly by an outside right. force to, to exact- harvest or harness the, the, That's right. the power of, of nature. That's exactly yeah. right. And, and I don't have to do that. A steam engine for bees. <laughs> that was basically it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and because I'm not trying to maximize honey production, yeah. I can take a very different approach, which is essentially the way you know people started, um, I'll say, cultivating bees way back in the day, which is the, it's the equivalent of a, of a hollow log. It's called a top bar hive, and it doesn't have the enforced structure of the Langstroth hive, but instead it it lets the bees be bees. Yeah. Right. And it's perfect for what I'm trying to get out of my dilettante farming, right? Mm-hmm. I still like animals that pay the rent. Yeah. You know, I like the chickens. I like the sheep that we shear. I, I like the bees that, that give us honey. But because I don't have the requirement to make a living out of this, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful luxury, it does allow me to see these animals, not in a natural, necessarily natural way, but in a in a more harmonious way with with their nature, mm-hmm. with their nature, yeah. And and it's looking at those patterns then I'm able to find I, I think some very interesting, not just corollaries but real lessons for mm-hmm. how human behavior uh, operates. Yeah. Whether we're talking about chickens or bees or you, you name it. Yeah, that's something that's always fascinated me. Um, about a decade ago, when I was studying uh, <clears throat> when I was studying evolutionary psychology, mm-hmm. one of the courses I was taking was the evolution of language. Yep. And you know, in the evolution of language course, we also we also discussed the evolution of, of bee communication, um, and and what we understand about how bees communicate through you know movement, complex movements within yep. their hive, and the ability um, of a bee to, for example, understand where they've been. When they were out looking for pollen, for example, or flowers that you know that are that are in bloom, um, and then be able to through a particular type of dance or the waggle dance come right. back into that 
that and effectively create a, a pattern of vibration that spreads through the collective intelligence of this bee brain, so to speak, and yeah. then through that expression, change the collective behavior of, of the entire colony and, and kind of shift its its collective agency, which which seems quite related to a lot of the types of things you talk about when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to talking about things like the common knowledge problem. Well, that's exactly right, Matthew. And one of the, the first lessons I learned about beekeeping and being a successful beekeeper is to understand that the animal mm -hmm. is really not the individual bee. Yeah. The animal is the colony. Mm -hmm. and, and, and once, and that seems kind of easy to say, but, but you, you only really experience it when you know they're zipping at you, and you know, you're, you're, you're you know looking for the queen, and 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 it changed everything for me. I got stung a lot less. I was I was much gentler with the bees. I was able to handle the bees better. Mm -hmm. To really absorb this notion that the animal is the is the colony. Yeah. It's not the individual bee. And and what I will tell you is that that has changed so much my understanding of of markets and investing and politics and voting. The animal is not us as individuals, mm -hmm. right, in terms of our voting, our investment behavior. The animal truly is the crowd. And there are such wonderful tools within game theory to try to understand the strategic interaction of crowds, mm -hmm. right, as opposed to how we typically think of game theory uh, which is in the, you know a two by two you know prisoner's dilemma or a game of chicken or the like, and the, the the other thing I'll say about this and your 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 point about language is so important. For my money, right, the absolute best work that's happening in game theory today, it's not in economics departments, right? It's in evolutionary biology departments, yes. But you kind of expect that, I think, you know, sure. hawks and doves and, you know, these, these kind of, you know, well-known games and, and, and patterns. Yeah, actually trying to build the emergent models of the phenomena. That's that right. Studied. That's right. Yeah. But linguistics, there's mm -hmm. wonderful work in game theory happening in linguistics. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's those two fields that yeah. I find are most useful for finding the, uh, the, 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 really the, 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 to get your chops, yeah. right, if you will, at applying game theory to a phenomenon like like markets. Because those are kind of two sides of the same coin in the sense where the the biological tends to skew towards, you know, which of these patterns are reproducing and, and how those dynamics unfold. And then the linguistics are, you know, how are the patterns generated and, and spread? That's exactly and so it's right. So kind of the, the two sides of this, well this game being played, uh, iterated across evolutionary time. That, that, that's very well put. And, and, of course, the other common denominator, right, when we're talking about language with bees and with, with human beings, is that they are, uh, they're eusocial animal, EU social mm -hmm. animals, right? And, and they're really only a few species in the world that, that fall under that, that, that category. And if you ever read anything about E.O. Wilson. You know, I love E.O. Wilson. Oh, He's one of my favorite. Like, consilience changed my life. That book I, changed my life. I, I feel the same way, yeah. right? And, and, you know, this, this book, the, the you know, social history of, of Earth, is, it's just, I, I, I defy anyone to read it and not have their lives Definitely. changed. 
part of my current mission is also trying to, to socially upregulate his ideas around dual inheritance theory. Uh, I, I hear you on that. Yeah. I hear you on that. I, and and because I, there are a lot of aspects of his work, I think that need work, mm-hmm. right? Or, or or could certainly use you know yeah. as you're describing. Updating. They were rough pictures. They were rough pictures. Yeah. But that's the way all science works. Mm-hmm. But this this notion that that and there are a few characteristics of what defines a eusocial animal, right? It's it's uh, job specialization. It's um, multiple generations uh, essentially living in the same nest, right? Uh, different generations taking care of the young, right? The mm-hmm. brood. Yeah. Right? And, and what's fascinating to me, though, is, is the, the, the other aspect of this is that for a eusocial species, they all swim in an ocean of intraspecies communication. Mm-hmm. That's that's the that's the oxygen really they breathe, and the you know the and I don't think it's any accident that, for my again my argument would be the foremost successful multicellular species on Earth, the termite, the ant, the bee, and the human, mm-hmm. those are your four best examples of a eusocial species. Yeah. And what they all have in common is this notion of language, that they are immersed in language and messaging. They are, in, in the case of bees, termites, and ants, they are truly hardwired mm-hmm. to respond to the, the pheromones of the queen, yeah. let's say, right? But there's a lot of hardwiring in, in, in humans as well. And there's a lot of what I call soft wiring. Yeah, as unpopular uh, as all of this is to discuss in, in 2018, but. <laughs> but, but, but... But there's a lot of that, yeah. right? And, and so that there are these stories, right, these narratives, which, which truly do have power mm-hmm. over us. And, you know, it's not, it's not an absolute power as, you know, I, I do a lot of work in, in the field of uh, natural language processing. And I think there's some neural linguistic program. That, that those letters, NLP, stand yeah, for something neural else. Neural linguistic programming, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is, a lot of that's kind of a lot of hooey, I think, sure. you know, right? Um, At the very least, like highly unproven. <laughs> high, highly, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so, so I'm not trying to say that like <laughs> words are like a magic spell that that, but but there's an element to yeah. this. But they kind of are. <laughs> but they kind of are. Yeah. They kind of are, yeah. and, and and they're just not just examples, but again, looking at it through the lens of linguistics, you can really have a toolkit to try to understand how language developed as humankind developed. And, and I'm not so hard going to say that, you know, our grammar defines the way we think, right? But there's an element to that. Mm-hmm. There really is. Not like in, in, not necessarily a hardcore Derrida, nothing exactly. outside the text. Right, right. I'm, 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 not, yeah. I'm, I'm not that far. Sure. But, but I will but we tell do live you. But we do swim in this sea of language. We, see it, we swim framing. in this yeah. sea of language. Yeah. And, and when I think to myself, in any given day, and I know there have been studies about this, how many messages mm-hmm. are you peppered with? And I think, you know, are there any periods of time during the day where I'm not immersed in, in message? How, how long does it go before I, 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 I'm, I, I have a message of my waking time? Yeah. And it's, and it's darn few. 
it's darn few, and, and a lot of it is imposed on me, and a lot of it I, I impose on myself with mm-hmm. you know my little dopamine machine. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. And, and it's and even if not the dopamine machine, the the unconscious will surface thoughts even if you're just by yourself. Absolutely. So you're even kind of subject to your own absolutely uh, notification stream, if you will. And it it, it it becomes, but but this this obsession, and it is an obsession to to communicate and be be to both message and be messaged. You know, you see it all through nature, and and you particularly see it in nature on the farm, which is is all about how do you how do you control or how do you harness animals. And and so it it can go to the extreme of creating the Langstroth hive, right? Where by God, you are forcing the bees <laughs> in a very prescribed yeah. manner. But it's also true in the way that humans work with horses, mm-hmm. with dogs, with with you know goats and sheep. It's it's it, it, it's all part of this, yeah. right? Where we are, you the the animal, not just the eusocial animals, but all animals. They want to be part of something. Right, whether it's a pack or a flock or or you name it. Yeah. Right, and 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 humans have been so good over thousands of years at figuring out how to control these animals. Well, let me tell you, humans are also really good at figuring things out for controlling us. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to write about in Epsilon Theory. Yeah, I think I think you do a wonderful job of that to try to maybe take a few of these threads yeah. that we've we've opened up and and weave them into a pattern um, that might help give some some insight into the metagame that you so frequently talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, our technology obviously is a way in, in the same way that the beehive that was created uh, what was his name one more time? Langstroth. The Langstroth uh, beehive hive. was yep. a particular type of hive that was designed for a particular incentive landscape um, and and took a complex system and, and kind of constrained that system, uh, irrespective of, of many uh, other variables in the natural system. It wasn't necessarily concerned with, for example, um, the the spread of disease through that, perhaps, or the overall stability or health of this colony uh, when introduced to future technologies or pesticides or whatnot. So, to some extent, we might be in a world in which the extreme spread of this particular type of hive for the purpose of maximizing honey production has destabilized or made far more fragile um, the the entire ecosystem of, of bee pollination. You know, in, in the, the other thing it really lends itself to is our particular uh, breeds yeah. of bees, mm-hmm. right? So, 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 so hyper-specialization. You're spot on. Right, yeah, no, you're, you're spot on, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, so then actually, domestication in, in general. There's this wonderful book called Domesticated, which looks at uh, pretty much about a dozen different animal species that have mm-hmm. been domesticated, right? From the you know the cow to the dog to the horse to the pig, you name it. And it takes its it it really explores the both the obviously there's the 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 the, the, the phenotype changes mm-hmm. that you see in animals as they become domesticated and also looking at kind of how at a at a at a genotype level what what what's being selected for and how that that progresses over thousands of years as an animal species is domesticated so without exception literally without exception 
domesticated animals, uh, their, uh, their faces become more uh, infantile, mm-hmm. right? The ears become floppier, mm-hmm. and the brains become smaller. And you know the 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 there there's a number of of of, of uh, hormonal expressions that kind of control you know a, a lot of this, but but it's but it's just an amazing thing that domestication, which of course is this combination of of structure and 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 in some cases some species the language and the the processes you use, but how it 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 over time it absolutely has. A, a a profound impact on the bio- biology, and you know I suspect it's the same with humans as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and, and upon that, um, upon that fundamental domestication or self domestication, perhaps self-domestication, that we are we are right. imposing uh, upon ourselves, you know, in a way that simultaneously perhaps opens some doors and closes others for the future of our of, yeah. our, of our culture and our species. Um, I'm curious in terms of the role of, of technology, right? Because something I, I kind of think a, quite a bit about is this tension between um, individual autonomy and collective agency, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this, there's to some extent, humans have balanced this ability to allow individuals to go explore the world outside the you know rigid constraints or tyrannical constraints of a collective while allowing for the collective to still... Um, have an overall direction, an overall agency to kind of guide and parameterize the, the lives of individuals. And it seems that even though we are you social, as you mentioned, we have far more individual autonomy, <clears throat> autonomy than the other three species you mentioned. But I'm curious if we are, as part of our technological curve, removing that from ourselves by connecting ourselves um, via tools like the internet, if we are connecting ourselves in a way that means we are less capable of allowing for individual autonomy, that we are now so closely connected to one another and so closely uh, part of this group watching the group game that we're we're actually making ourselves more like the bees and less human. Yes, it's it, it's self-imposed and it's also other imposed, and and, and what I mean by that. Uh, is that, look, successful politicians have known about the power of language and the power of specific language in terms of narrative arcs and also getting a crowd to focus on looking at itself. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll come back to that in a second. What's, what's new today, I think, are two things. The first is that everybody's in on the act, mm-hmm. right? So, so it, it, it's... it's uh, it the, the the tools and the techniques of whether we call in game theory uh, the the missionary effect the 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 person who stands in front of a megaphone and speaks to a crowd uh, that that technique has become very widespread so this is why for example uh, you know you can't go a day without some governor of the federal Reger- federal reserve giving a speech Mm-hmm. Right, that's a very conscious policy to be out there and to give their forward guidance, not because the communication is is an necessarily an accurate reflection of what they really think about the economy or monetary policy, but and, and this isn't a tinfoil hat thing. This is an avowed. This we call it communication policy. The goal is 
through their words to try to influence, in this case, investor behavior. That they want to choose their words uh, in order to affect or change that behavior, not because it's the words they actually believe. You know, what we might call lying under mm-hmm. other circumstances, <laughs> right? Or, but, or tapping into the separation between, I guess, you've described in, in other articles, like the biological reality of Lyme disease and, ah, well, Lyme the, disease. The Lyme, right, the, the, the meme. The mimetic the, the, the layer. Name. That's right, the yeah. mimetic layer. These two different exactly layers right. that can be interacted with in different different manners. And, and it's, it's, it's now everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's ubiquitous, and, and so it's, it's both a something we pull upon ourselves because it is entertaining. This is a dopamine machine, yeah. right? I love it. I'm hooked on <laughs> it. I am. Mm-hmm. Right? I kid myself, oh, it's kind of my business. I need to develop my Twitter following or whatever. <laughs> but that's, that's, a, that's a load of BS. It's because I'm getting that bzz, bzz, bzz of, of the, the pleasure from participating in this game that we call Twitter or, you know, what have you. Which may have some positive externalities, but yeah, also uh, plenty of negative. It, it does, <laughs> but, but and this is the other part about the, 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 the technology here, right, which is that, yes, there's a wonderful aspect of the development of the Internet and our different technologies for disintermediation, mm-hmm. right, meaning that you, Matthew, you can do this podcast, and by God, if you keep at it and you keep doing good work at it, you can get a really big audience, Right? There's no gatekeeper that pre- crossed. There you go. There you go. There's no gatekeeper that prevents you from doing this. Yeah. There's no arbiter of access mm-hmm. that exists anymore. Yeah. But at the same time, the economics and the need for scale mm-hmm. has never been greater in our business, uh, in any business. Right. I'm talking about financial services, where, you know, it, it's just it's insane. I, I mean, it, it is literally insane. The, how scale has has just enveloped, you know, every aspect of financial services. But it's true in healthcare. It's true in any sort of media business. It's true in technology. So what this means is that at the same time that the technology allows for disintermediation, allows for a voice like yours or like mine to find an audience, at the same time, the the megaphones have never been in a more powerful position. Mm-hmm. And, and what's fascinating for me, in, in financial services at least, is that there are really only four megaphones for the common knowledge game. And let me describe what I mean by common knowledge. Common knowledge is a piece of information that we believe everyone else has heard. Mm-hmm. And so as a, as a professional investor, if someone says something on Bloomberg or on the Wall Street Journal or on God Help Us CNBC or on the, the FT, particularly for European, if, 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 that, if a message appears on any one of those four and only those four platforms, then I as a professional investor must assume that every other professional investor has heard it. And that's what creates common knowledge. So access to these platforms and, and this is the weird world in which we live, a world of disintermediation, but it's a world where those four platforms have never been more important. And what those four platforms then create, and this is, this is clear to anyone who's been in the business, if you're able to get your message out on that platform, 
then that creates enormous power over people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost as if there's there's still a even though we've disintermediated the the gatekeepers, even though right. we can create a bottom up flow of information, um, because the standards there's there are no necessary are no standards. standards. Um, it tends to be discounted unless it's a downstream amplification of the signal by the four mainstream That's signals. That's exactly like, right. So it's like if, if you're talking about an article that was written by the New York Times, people can still relate to that far more than if you're trying to kind of create a new narrative. That's that 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 that's it exactly, and and it, and it creates and, and there are lots of interesting I think tools and techniques that that again what we call missionaries people yeah. with access to these um, uh, megaphones use that in the in the most prominent technique the one of the most successful techniques is right at the beginning of whatever it is you're talking about what you want to do first of all is is make the audience pay attention to themselves. Hmm. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, whatever you think of, and I don't. I mean, we don't have to go into this. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, Whatever you think about Donald Trump mm-hmm. and his policies, what I would suggest to you is he's really good at playing this game. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of his background, probably as a reality TV star, yeah. right? But like, like induced reflexivity in whoever is watching. That's exactly him. right. Yeah. So, 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 so. Whatever speech, you, so so listen for this or watch for this the next time you see the Donald give one of his talks, particularly at a campaign rally or at a you know any sort of event. The first thing he'll do is he'll comment on the size of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Remember at the inauguration where all evidence to the contrary, you know, we had we had photographs, aerial photographs yeah. that yeah. that. You know, well, the crowd was a lot smaller than at Obama's inauguration. But all evidence to the contrary, he made such a big deal out of saying over and over, oh, more people were at this inauguration than any other. I say all evidence to the contrary. That's a very conscious decision. And it's incredibly effective because it doesn't even matter if the crowd believes that they're the biggest crowd to ever be at the inauguration. It primes the crowd to start looking around at each other. And that is how this whole gameplay, the dynamics of the common knowledge game work, is for the crowd to be looking around at the crowd. And so a successful missionary, that's, that's, that's the, the trick they use. And, and that's why I really think that the Donald is so successful at, 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 at using this toolkit. Yeah, and it's, so it's just, tremendous. just for clarification, when once that reflexivity is opened up and mm-hmm. once the crowd has been primed, um, maybe you could speak a little bit to the types of behavior that that uh, opens them to, or that you know, how how does this make us susceptible to to coercion or to um, seeding of of behavior that might not be in our own interests? What happens to the crowd after they they are made reflexive? Well, it, so I'll I'll give a specific example from you know running a hedge fund, mm-hmm. right? Which is that um, uh, eight times a year. It's going to go to 12 times a year, but in the over the past 10 years, eight times a year, the um, the the Fed, the um, uh, Federal Reserve, the Open Market Committee, has a meeting where they announce what they're doing with interest rates. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the single most important decision that's made in terms of whether markets go up or down, mm-hmm. bar none. And I say eight times a year because they will, um, you know, at, at 
10 minutes after 2, typically, 2 p.m. Eastern time, they will, you know, it's like the, you know, the white smoke or whatever it is from the, you know, the papal, <laughs> yeah. you know, conclave, right? The, the report, here's our decision, right? And it's a couple of paragraphs long. That'll get released. And immediately the market will move up or down depending on whether that decision was anticipated or, or expected. But whatever movement occurs from you know, 2.10 p.m. to 2.30 p.m., everything changes at 2.30. Because at 2.30, two things happen. Uh, first is that again, eight times a year they have a press conference. So it's an opportunity for the missionary, whether it was Ben Bernanke or then Janet Yellen or now Jerome Powell, to get out there and to not just we raised interest rates by a quarter point or we held it flat or what have you, but to actually give a message, mm-hmm. right? To, 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 to talk, to jawbone, right, as, the, as we described. Also, exactly at that period of time, exactly at 30 minutes past the hour, there's, this has changed a little bit in the last year or two, but for about seven or eight years ago, there was a, a Wall Street Journal writer named John Hilsenrath, who precisely at 30 minutes past the hour would write, again, in one of these platforms, these me- media megaphones, the Wall Street Journal, and he would write an article. We already knew what the decision was, but John Hilsenrath would write an article telling you, gentle reader, how you should think about the decision. Mm-hmm. And that's what a missionary does. It's, it's, they're, not, they're not giving you the news. They're not a newscaster. There's a, I use a famous slide where I can, I, I, there's a picture of every famous politician or banker or you name it, investor in the world. I can give you a picture of that person shaking his or her finger at the audience. And this is such a powerful meme and tool, the shaking their finger at you Again, they're, they're not telling you what the news is. They're telling you how to think about the news. What does it mean that the Fed kept interest rates flat or raised it by a quarter point or lowered it by a quarter point? It's that shaking their finger at you and telling you how to think about the world that is what the missionary conveys. And whether or not you believe like I, I, I was a hedge fund manager, and like I said, I, I, there's a lot of money at stake with what the Fed is doing. And so I would have my own views about what the Fed should do, right? And and almost immediately you 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 get rid of that very quickly, right? Because you know who cares what you think, right? It's what everyone else thinks. So then your thought is, all right, well, you know, what was the consensus? What was the prediction? And that's the movement that happens from 10 minutes after to 30 minutes after. And there's a little bit of movement. It maybe goes up, maybe it goes down. But then John Hilsenrath or the, 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 the Fed chair, him or herself, will get out there and tell you how to think about it. And almost always I disagree with them mm-hmm. personally. But again, it doesn't matter what I think. And it doesn't even matter what the consensus was going into the decision. What matters, and this is why my change in behavior is very rational, if I think that every other investor is hearing this information, 
I must act as if I believe in that information as well. That is absolutely the rational thing to do. So even though I think that a lot of what Hills and Rath was writing was, was, was nonsense and was meaningless, right? I'm looking around, I'm thinking, look, everyone else is hearing the same message. Yeah. And I know that they're all smart enough that they're all looking around hearing the same message. And so the way this game is played, the rational decision is for each individual cell of the animal, right? Each member of the crowd is to, the emergent behavior is to, is to act as if what that missionary is saying is true. It's an incredibly powerful phenomenon. Yeah. And you've seen it for thousands of years in human history. Right? Like I say, this is this is why this is why coronations used to be or still held in public. Right? This is why executions used to be held in public. It wasn't to get a crowd of people to see the poor guy getting hanged. It was so everybody could see the crowd watching the poor guy getting hanged. Yeah. And, it's like and, a reaffirmation of the consensus of the, the collective behavior. It, it is. It is. It, it, and, and lots of writers write, whether it's the panopticon, right? It's, it's knowing mm-hmm. that you're being watched by the crowd. It, and, and it's not only just some sort of emotional bias or weirdness we have. No, it's a very rational decision that, that we're looking around and we, we, we see the message that's going out to the entire crowd. It's entirely rational for us to act as if we believe it too. It's the thing about it also is that once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. Yeah, another place where this might be—I mean, I think—is uh, is completely evident—is within. And this might be a good place where we could switch to the space of decentralized economy or or, or Bitcoin. Sure. Um, because I think there's something quite relevant along those lines as well, which is. I've been watching these quote unquote markets. I don't mm-hmm. know how you'd feel about me using the term markets for talking about, you know, what's happening with Bitcoin prices. Um, but it is fascinating. It's a market. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poor market, but that's okay. <laughs> so this is, yeah, I'm just trying to be somewhat careful. We're precise with no, the no, language no, no, at I, the I moment. I mean, um, we obviously have exchanges and, and there are marketplaces for, uh, for exchanging these tokens of value. So market, um, but it's fascinating to me uh, to think about the in the same way that there is a dissociation between you know, in normal market or like in our normal financial markets between um, the behavior of value investment in terms of people who are thinking about um, trying to assess the actions of those individuals who are taking resources and capital and trying to um, alter the course of reality in some way, creating some good or service to overall create value for some element of society, mm-hmm. right? Like maybe you're, you're making, uh, <laughs> to use your favorite example, uh, Teslas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, whether or not uh, people agree on that value proposition is one thing, but at least somebody's actually trying to make cars. Um, then there's a layer on top of that, which is the people signaling about beliefs about making cars, right? And, and that's happening at a much faster time frame. It's happening uh, oftentimes at, you know, scales of time that yep. like microseconds or nanoseconds, yep. scales of time that have very little bearing on the underlying car making process, right? Uh, and, and it seems as if, you know, there's, there's a connection between those two realities, um, although it can become tenuous and, and it can diverge. And when it does so, you can get very destructive situations. But it, it seems as if, 
at least to me, watching the, the, crypto, the crypto markets or the Bitcoin markets, that given the absence of the former in terms of like there, there's so little, um, you know, there's, there's a lot that is somewhat real mm-hmm. in terms of what's going on with Bitcoin development. But that being said, there's far less activity going on to drive prices um, in terms of actual Bitcoin engineering. Like the prices aren't going up based on like code commits. And what's happening is people are, you know, it's the most TA driven market in the world, I would argue. And so people are believing in these rules of TA and therefore the, the audience, sorry. So you're talking technical analysis, technical analysis. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm forgetting. I'm just kind of wrapped up in the jargon, but yeah, technical analysis, which is, you know, here's this set of patterns to look for. And if these, if you see these patterns, then you should effectively move in a certain direction or, or behave in a certain way. Um, and it's interesting to me that, uh, it seems like this inescapable loop is created where, you know, because it's such a, um, it's a 24 seven market, everybody's yeah. always watching the market and it's so TA driven that the market actually begins to conform at a higher rate to the patterns of technical analysis, thus reinforcing the belief in technical analysis. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, at least it feels that way. There, there, there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. Uh, and I'll let me back up a second because we're, 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 I think the worst thing that ever happened to Bitcoin or to crypto in general is that they became uh, I'll call it publicly traded securities. Hmm. Uh, I think the best thing in the world for Tesla would be to be a, a private company. I, you can't unring these bells, of course, right? And the, but the, but the reason I say this is, as soon as you have a publicly trade, as soon as you have a crowd trading a security, as soon as you have a securitization of something, right? Where you're no longer trading the underlying economic widget or or the like, but mm-hmm. you're trading a a piece of paper, right? Or an electronic you know, credit or debit or, or whatever the representation is of the underlying thing, right? The fundamental economic activity of a car manufacturer, right? And I'm gonna come back to Bitcoin because of that, this, this exact, you know, what is the fundamental activity, right? Is it, is it just, you know, are we securitizing, you know, ledger calculations, you're right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, that's what you are and I, I yeah. get that, right? And there's, there's both, with well, the storage of excess energy on a ledger, right, 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 what, yeah, exactly. Right, what, right, what are we right. exactly? But it, but it's, it's clearer, I think, in 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 something like a a Tesla, for example. Mm-hmm. Again, you can't unring the bell, but once you start trading the little piece of paper that's the stock in Tesla, there is a separation from the underlying, you know, yeah. fundamentals of, of 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 that company, and particularly in again, this day and age of the dopamine machines and the, the always on, the, the game aspect of public securities markets, then the game playing takes over. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. And I'll, so I'll, I'll give you another example, and this will be, I think, more relevant for the, the, the power of narrative and why I'm, I, I get so, I, I'm such a big fan. I, I, I find that that both Tesla and crypto in general, I find them to be so elegant and 
fascinating and I'm rooting for them and I, and I just, I love everything about it. But when it enters this world that I've been immersed in of public markets, it is so infested by people who intentionally play the games really well to separate well-meaning people from their money mm-hmm. that I just, it just, it just, it just eats me up. Yeah. It just eats me up. So I, and this is, this is the way that public markets were considered before World War II, right? So, so, so bear with me a second, but if you look at the the histories and the biographies of you know people like uh, you know Andrew Carnegie right or or Jay Gould who who cornered the gold market in the 1870s, or um, uh, the Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt you know the robber barons mm-hmm. right, and you 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 read about how they made their fortunes on Wall Street. They're not talking about free cash flow models. They're not talking about the economic fundamentals of the, you know, the Erie Railroad Company or, you know, a canal company or what have you. No, what they are doing, and this is what Wall Street meant, this is what trading public securities meant before World War II, was all about narrative. You know, even, the, even a lot of the language uh, that we still use in markets where we, we talk about cornering a market, mm-hmm. right? So getting a corner, that was, that was what trading, that's what Wall Street was all about. It, it, again, for, you know, 100 years or several hundred years, getting a corner meant promoting a story that would get everybody on one side or another of a stock. And then you could set yourself up to you know, that reversal, you'd be positioned for that reversal for the stock either going way up or way down. Yeah. And so, and so we, we still use that word, oh, I'm going to corner the market. It means that that's what getting a corner meant. It meant. It meant getting everybody to one side or another of the market. And so what you read about with these titans of Wall Street and the fortunes they made, it was all about playing the game of markets. It was all about creating these stories and narratives to get everybody on one side or another of a stock. Right? Yeah. And, and on the flip side, making sure that they weren't taken by someone else's stories. And we, we, we and you see this in so many aspects of, of particularly American culture, but Western culture in general, after World War II, particularly in the US, you have this over, uh, this scientificization of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we started talking about this, the Department of Government in yeah. Harvard, right? Well, it was after World War II where departments of political science yeah. are established, you know, all, all over in the, in, in, in the U.S. Everything becomes scientificized and everything becomes, I'll say, um, popularized. So in the 1960s, uh, you get, it was called the Thundering Herd. It was the Merrill Lynch. And the salesman took Wall Street onto Main Street. And, and, and it was the, both the popularization and so what's the story to drive, you know, a doctor or a lawyer and, you know, on Main Street to, to put money into the stock market, which didn't happen before World War II. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to have the story of science. And, and, and that became the narrative. 
And there's, look, like most areas, there's a lot of truth to it. There's a lot of truth to doing free cash flow analysis and understanding the fundamentals of company X and company Y. But I, I feel like we've largely forgotten the lessons of those robber barons uh, in terms of, of what drives security prices up or down. And while we, the ordinary investor, may have forgotten about it, Wall Street's never forgotten about it. And there are a lot of what I call raccoons out there who create and maintain these stories, again, to separate people from their cash. Yeah. And that's what I see, and, it, and, it's, and it's so powerful and frankly easy to do mm-hmm. in companies where the fundamentals become divorced from the security that you're trading. Yeah. And, and from the outset, Bitcoin and other cryptos are set that, you know, there's really no there there in terms of the fundamentals. So it becomes all story and all narrative. And we, we convince ourselves that the narrative that we're hearing yeah. is, 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 is right and correct. And, 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 and all I can tell you is that, and I, and I saw this in 2008 and 2009, the people who got us into the great financial crisis, a lot of them are in crypto now, right, doing the same and we call it a scam, and what I mean by it is the same way of using words and language and narrative and creating a story to take your money from you. Yeah. And and, and again, that just eats me up so much. It's, it's hard for, I, I get I get portrayed, and, and probably rightly so, as being anti-Bitcoin or anti-crypto. And that's, that's it's really not true. But what I am so anti, and I don't think you can separate it, are these thieves, right, who infest financial services, absolutely infest financial services, yeah. and who are there using their, their narratives, yeah. right, to take your money from you, and it just ends badly. Yeah, I, I definitely see that pattern. And I think the, the question I've been asking myself recently is, you know, there's this tension between centralization and decentralization across really almost any complex system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a, in a highly centralized uh, financial system, you have, you know, these that the, the raccoon types yeah. clustering around the, the centers of the network where a lot of value flows, right? Yep. Um, so that was like kind of the 2008 crisis where you had a, a, an innovation, a financial innovation in a particular risk analysis method. Yep. And that allowed a, a large amount of people um, who were kind of close to that source of innovation to, to push a particular narrative, spin a particular narrative, and get a large amount of the, the public on board with that, um, internalizing the, the profits or, or centralizing the profits while externalizing or diffusing the risks. The risks, yep. Um, and then it all blew up when when it turned out that that particular when we had a nationwide decline in home prices. Yeah, when it turned out right. that that particular equation that was, that was the assumption that everything was built on. Yeah, a ten trillion dollar asset class yeah. was built on the assumption that it was impossible to have a nationwide decline in home prices. Yeah. If you violated that assumption, it all comes tumbling yeah. down. And the algorithm that was used to evaluate that risk on the way up was completely incapable of evaluating risk on the way down. Um, so everything blew up and it seems to some extent what we have now is a similar pattern but if you invert the direction of the flow like where we have decentralized marketplace where we're we're like ICOs for example Mm -hmm. where this pattern of trying to get the money to flow from the edges of the system 
the bottom up the mountain to companies that were trying to um, create something of value, presumably. And so you have a, a crowdfunding model, effectively. But yeah. there were, we don't really have any, we didn't have any mechanism in place of identifying best practices or what it looks like, what predatory behavior in that domain looks like or how yeah. to. Yeah, but see, there's there's a reason why we have the you know, Securities Acts of 1934 mm-hmm. or 1935, which is that the, the, that the asymmetry of information mm-hmm. for someone offering an ICO, yeah. an unregulated ICO, mm-hmm. and the person buying it, that the asymmetry of information there, it is, it is, it is a used car salesman selling you a lemon, maybe, yeah. Right. Likely. Uh, uh, likely. And you see this all on, over Twitter. And I'll use that, you know, on steroids. But 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 to it, it is it is that used car salesman um, asymmetry of information. You know, at a at a, at a you know a, a, a factor higher. Yeah. Right. And, it's a, and, and so there's good reason, I believe, to have I mean, this is this is, you know, I'm. I even hate to use the word libertarian because it's gotten so tarred and feathered with so many so much baggage. But I, I I there is a role for government. Sure. Right? And 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 that role I think is in the 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 enormous scope of predatory commercial activity that can happen when you've got these asymmetries of information. Mm-hmm. And and it and it happens so much with anything to do with a securities offering, right? So I, I hear you on the whole decentralization side, but there is a role, there is a need for centralized regulatory authority over anything to do with securities. I really believe that in my heart because the ability and the power for a smooth-talking you know, mm-hmm. raccoon to take advantage of that asymmetry of information is just is overwhelming yeah it's uh, and i'm not a paternalistic guy i'm not trying to you know hold people's hands and have them not take risk if they don't if they want to take risk but i i'm just saying it's just this this is not something new i'm talking about right this has happened thousands of times over history and it always ends up the same freaking way and I'll tell you the other aspect of the centralization versus decentralization issue that I have, which is that the reason we have centralization, the reason we have governments mm-hmm. is to issue money, to tax, period, full stop. Yeah. To, well, to, to monitor and regulate the flow of value within a but, society. But, but in a very specific way, so, yeah. so in, in order to confiscate a slice of that, but yeah. why for good reasons, right? For, uh, for uh, you know, you know the tragedy of the commons issues, things that we couldn't uh, provide for ourselves, like yeah. security or regulation, yeah. right? I mean, if, one one can look at act, the brain as a centralized tyrant if you really want to frame it. That if, way, if you want right? to go, sure, yeah. sure. So you know, there there are, I think, very legitimate, necessary reasons for government. Mm-hmm. And at its core, the existential reason for government is to, they call it, you know, seniorage, right? Which, which, which is not S-E-N, but S-E-I-G-N, you know, mm-hmm. the, the seniorage, right? But it's basically taking their cut, mm-hmm. taking their cut to pay for these activities. Yeah. 
So if you're trying to set up an alternative money, right, that, that and this is why governments you know, hate gold so much, right, for thousands of years. And, and, and so the, the, the argument this is either digital gold or it's a store of value or, or you know, that in the coming, you know, hell to pay that, that this, is, this is going to be how people, you know, keep what's theirs. I'm so sympathetic to that. I'm so, I, I am so sympathetic to that. And yet, because it is just overwhelmed with the raccoons who are there to, to steal your money, and because it is antithetical to why governments exist, and so they, when, you know, the shit hits the fan, yeah. they are going to fight that with every fiber of their being. That's that. That's why I I, I just have a hard time with the true believers, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I I feel like I know how this story is going to end, and it doesn't mean that I don't see value in it and elegance in it and uses for it. I do. But innovation, financial innovation, it it just all always ends in tears. Hmm. I, so in kind of putting on my evolutionary biologist hat yeah. in terms of um, looking at innovation ending in tears, part of me... Financial innovation. Ending, and, and I don't mean innovation. Just, I, sure, sure, right, sure. Financial okay. innovation. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess then the question would be exactly what it is that makes financial innovation in your mind um, particularly uh, likely Egregious, to, lead, to right. lead to these types of tears. Um, but I'm curious because what I'm trying to differentiate that yeah. from is uh, just the tendency of like any uh, mutation or any like in, in, in a genetics manner, like most mutations are, are bad mutations, right? Most mutations are Absolutely. lethal mutations. That's right. And even the, even the mutations that might eventually confer evolutionary or adaptive value within one niche in many other niches are also bad solutions. And so you know, there's a lot of, you know, evolution is, is quite a effective solution, but the cost that that efficacy comes at is a lot of death, right? A lot of failed mm -hmm. experiments. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious, cause I definitely, you know, the crypto world has been quite familiar with a lot of death over the past year. Yep. I mean, this, this market has, I think something like 90% of the coins that cropped up over the past two years have died, um, which is probably a good thing. Um, and I'm completely with you in terms of trying to, uh, I also wonder uh, at what point governments will begin to put a lot more, not only scrutiny, but energy into actively uh, attacking these types of technologies and how effective that will be. Um, but I am curious in terms of like, can we find emergent solutions to, um, to kind of trap raccoons? Like, is that possible? Uh, within with these new technologies and what makes me a little sad is that you know I see a market in which we actually do have new game theoretical tools in these coins to experiment with things yet we're falling back into the narrative driven yeah. patterns which would I guess speak to your and, point and this is what my whole point about it you know going public yeah right it it, it ruins it right yeah. it, 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 that it you no longer have the luxury of time mm -hmm. because the the, the, the the both the pressure and the promise of becoming rich, yeah, takes over. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, the the things that are constant in the human experience with financial services is fear and greed. Mm -hmm. That is a constant, yeah. right? And and that doesn't change. Uh, 
and and that's why I'm I'm I, I'm so not just leery but 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 highly um, opposed to almost all financial innovation, mm. right? Because everything once it becomes gets in that public sphere again that pressure to make money from it from because there are only two kinds of innovation there are new ways to borrow money new ways to find leverage mm-hmm. you know new ways to package assets so that you can borrow on it you know new ways of 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 you know re repossess you know hypothecation these are all different ways of finding leverage new ways to borrow money yeah that's one and the other form of 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 innovation is a securitization right a new way to abstract mm-hmm. a chip a casino chip yeah symbolize some type of to value to symbolize yeah. some sort of value that's exactly right that's mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. that's it right and against that backdrop of fear and greed what i find is that when something enters that public sphere of public trading that the you you no longer have the time to um Experiment, explore, and try to develop. Right? You, you, the, 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 the opportunity is just so great and so tempting, and and that's why I, you know, as 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 much as I, I, I love aspects of, you know, I, and I just I just don't believe that it's how to say this. I'm so sympathetic. To the to the goal of into into the, the the discomfort and the frankly the, the 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 near hatred right of the of the way that the system the man right has set up this system right which which preserves and accentuates and accelerates um, not just not just inequality of, of, of outcome but also inequality of opportunity and, and it just it just it just makes me so sad right but I but I know that this is not the way mm-hmm. um, it, this is this is not how I, I think effective resistance can take place. Um, because it's beset both by again attacking the existential reason why the governments, the state exists in the first place, and it falls prey on the other side to our 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 absolute human nature of fear and greed. Hmm. And then you yeah. take you, you you put that in the crucible of 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 time mm-hmm. and pressures to get rich or. Yeah, or, when, you, or the when light? you lower the, or when you increase the time preference, I suppose. That's right. So that's that's the thing that interests me, and I, I guess we're we're getting a little short on time since you. I guess you have a few more minutes left, but just to kind of put this out there from the perspective of um, kind of I guess maybe the phenomenological phenomenological perspective of psychology, you know, there's an element of 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 our behavior that is a combination of the interaction of, of what's in us mm-hmm. and what we bring to that moment of an experience and, and how those two elements interact. And it seems as if, you know, there are different elements of, of human psychology. There are different um, notes within us that can resonate with different circumstances or different sure. games. Yep. And the question that I ask myself with respect to this emerging decentralized world uh, or 
this landscape of experimentation, if you will, is, you know, is it possible for us to create scenarios or games in which um, we are resonating with, with notes other than greed or fear more frequently? Not that those don't exist. You know, is it possible for oh, us Matthew, to lower the time I, preference, you, what, right? You're, what you're talking about is the reason I write Epsilon Theory. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I told you I started writing it from a dark place. Yeah. I, it has been the most gratifying experience of my life to 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 learn because and I didn't know this yeah but there are there are tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of us out there and by us I mean truth seeking again people who who are who are making their way in the world right but 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 are are, are really trying to do better by themselves, by their family, by by what I call the, the, their pack, mm-hmm. right? And we're and we're geographically disparate, right? But the but the wonderful thing about these tools of technology, it allows us to find each other. And to your question, yes, yes, absolutely. There, there. I, I am convinced that there are a myriad of ways for packs and sub-packs to come together and do small goods in the world, right? I see it all the time. I travel all over, and everywhere I go, I see people solving little puzzles and righting little wrongs and and, and, and doing little good things. And it, it gets hijacked and waylaid as soon as you put the, as soon as you put securities into it, as soon as you put money into it. And I, and I, and I know that sounds trite, and silly, but it's so true. Hmm. And, 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 the, and, the, and whether it's, 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 it's participation around making, you know, I, I love the whole maker movement. You know, the, yeah. you know yeah, I'm a big believer in this, right? Because it's, it's and, and this is the aspect of crypto that I find so invigorating. It's the, it's the maker aspect of this, not the get rich aspect of this. Hundred percent with you on that, and 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 that's, but but again, you can't unring these bells. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I understand how that can lead to a dark place because I'm also trying to struggle with with that precise problem in terms of you know, and maybe we can have another conversation sometime about this. But you know, the the tension between uh, wanting to perhaps symbolize more aspects of these behaviors that we we observe as positive or helpful we we witness these communities creating value together and then you know at least in the decentralized world right now there's a strong tendency to want to then overlay these symbolic systems and i think what i'm hearing you say is you know from your perspective that's probably likely to activate parts of those systems that will actually self-destruct so so my my motto yeah right as an investor uh-huh. Is to be long volatility, uh-huh. meaning change happens, and I, I want to be part of that, yeah. right? Part of that change, and I want to be short abstraction. Mm. Okay. Long volatility and short abstraction. That's mm. my motto, and that's what that's what I think we should be looking for here. All right. Well, fair enough. I think that's uh, that's a powerful abst- or I don't want to say it's a powerful abstraction. It's a powerful <laughs> motto. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but but yeah, I really appreciate you coming in the the show. It's my pleasure, yeah. Matthew. Really, anytime. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Whew. As you can probably tell, I wish that conversation had at least another thirty to forty-five minutes on it. 
uh, Dr. Hunt had to run. He had a couple other appointments to get to, but uh, in my opinion, we were really just starting to dig into the, the interesting bits around decentralization and centralization, the tension inherent there, and whether or not it makes sense to try to encapsulate certain parts of, of human behavior and human values, especially within collective or, or group situations, uh, to try to encapsulate some aspects of those behaviors in, in symbols and encapsulate them symbolically. Or, um, as Dr. Hunt seemed to suggest, that attempting to do so, attempting to in encode these um, aspects, more complex nuanced aspects of human behavior symbolically um, using either the models of securitization um, or increased leverage as, as Dr. Hunt explicitly um, says in the interview, uh, whether, whether adding or securitizing or financializing those elements of our, of our interpersonal behavior might, um, instead of making them uh, more effective or more more nuanced or more capable of actually encouraging positive collective behavior uh, might have the opposite effect and it seemed to be you know that that's what dr. Hunter and I were getting at towards the end of this conversation and I really wish we had a little bit more time to examine that and uh, I would be really interested to hear in the comments below what you think about that um, with that said I'm gonna wrap this up and if you liked the episode, please let me know. Please like the episode. Please subscribe to the channel. And if you want to see more episodes like this, I would really encourage you to check out the Patreon account, patreon.com slash catcoherence. And please consider supporting the show. I would like to, you know, very much like to bring more high quality, in-depth conversations like this into the world, exploring the intersection of traditional and new economics, um, game theory, economics, history, evolutionary psychology, uh, spirituality, all of these things, um, all these things should be explored in a way that, that I don't really see a lot of in the current media landscape. And I would like to do more of it, but uh, at the moment, this is a hobby and it's, it's a fun hobby and it's something that I really enjoy bringing to the world, but um, it's a hobby nonetheless. And if it could perhaps uh, pay the bills, then uh, I, could, I could really make this a full-time thing and bring more content to you. So with that said and with that pitch out of the way, please consider that. And uh, until next time, see you later.